So what I like about Horrified is that each turn, uh, you know, you have to do a, a human turn, monster turn. Now on the monster turn, you have to draw a card, and that's kind of what progresses the, the danger of the, the game. Uh, but that's also when citizens come into play. Okay. And so you would bring in, like, Ben Elizabeth from today's movie, or uh, you might bring in Renfield, and okay. you have to place them at a certain spot on the board, and uh, you have to try to keep them from getting attacked. Oh, cool. And so you can go get them, and you can take them to their destination, and they get off the board, and you get a reward. Um, so like also, a side quest. Now, yeah. Do these characters have like traits? Because like Renfield is like you know unstable. They don't. Your heroes do, but the actual citizens don't. They're gotcha. just little cardboard standees. Uh, but Wilbur and Chick from Abbott and Costello meet the Frankenstein are also in there. Nice. So some really fun. That's if you're a big really fan cool. of the the franchise, the that cycle of films, it's really rewarding. I think to play through. Uh, and it's really cool because each each creature, you know, each monster, you have like a mini objective you have to go do before you can actually defeat them. So like creature from the Black Lagoon, you have to go get your boat to the lagoon and mm-hmm. then go find him and kill him. Dracula have to go destroy coffins. The bride and the monster, you have to go to each of them and teach them how to be human and how to love uh, oh. to a certain degree before they meet up uh, that- so that they don't... Yeah, so you can so, so they don't do what they do in the movie. Yes, okay. uh, and the, it's just a lot of fun. So I, I mean, it's a fun co-op game, and uh, highly recommend it if if that's your flavor. Um, was that what inspired you? The board game was that what inspired yes, you for this Horrify the board game published by Ravensburger. Uh, partially, I, I mean, I was wondering. Like I mentioned, I, I thought about it briefly. Um, when we were first talking about this idea, and then you had mentioned something about you know not choosing something before 1970s, and I was like, well, that'd be a great idea because. That's an early blind spot. Yeah. Um, it's one of those from that, I mean, marquee of films of Dracula and Frankenstein and the Absolutely. Wolfman and the Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, she's mentioned in the same breath as those others, and, and it's highly regarded as better than the original. And so I thought it was a great blind spot. And so that's why I went with that that pick. That's right, because welcome again to the Good Trash Undergast, where we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film size course unless it happens to be during Shocktober. And here we are in Shocktober 8, The Ocho. And uh, here to discuss. Thank you. Thank you once again, Dustin. I spend uh, hours coming up with clever taglines for these franchises, and Dalton sneaks in <laughs> with the Ocho to rule the day. Arthur actually does have a really great. None of our marketing materials will reflect the Ocho, so that's just a fun listening joke. Yeah, that's, that's for you, the listeners at home. And, uh, you know, if you want to make some fan art, Go for it. It'll only, yes, please. It'll only make things worse. Yes, please. Arthur actually, uh, we found out recently, has a headcanon uh, for what the subtitle for all the Shocktobers are. Do you have that, Arthur? Because I, I was very delighted by it. Uh, Let me see this, if I can find it real This quick. is something he's done, uh, apparently, all on his own. Uh, but he, he he told us in the, the chat, and uh, I, was that before or after I threw out the outro as a joke? But Dustin, uh, unfortunately, has indulged me, and now it's official. Yes, and much like a precocious child, it is unstoppable <laughs> at this point. Yeah, so I think this really started back when we were doing that episode guide that if you're a Patreon supporter, you can get access to that at the uh, most basic tier, uh, which chronicles, I think, the first... It goes all the way up to Drive, I think, which is episode 200. I think it chronicles all those episodes. It just deals has with notes. The, the most obnoxious episodes we have. <laughs> yeah. It just has notes about what we shelved, what we trashed, yeah. what we recommended, the game, stuff like that. So if you've been listening for a long time or you're just curious about some of the older shows, you can kind of reference that and see what we talked about. Uh, but one of the things in there is we're going through is chronicling. It was setting up all the Shocktobers. And I was like, well, it'd be fun if they had like horror movie sequel titles. Yeah. And so I went through and we've got Shocktober, the original, Incarnation. Uh, then we got Shocktober Lives. The Shocktobering, Shock Harder, The Curse of Shocktober, Love that one. Something Wicked This Way Shocks, <laughs> Master of Shocks, and This is Dead Spots. 
So that's where we are. Officially, because, we are. This is dead spots officially because we're picking blind spots, and it seemed like a fitting name. And blind spotting was already taken by a, a very good movie, and I didn't want to yeah. use that. And I think that's also what they call it on film spotting when they go pick up yeah. a movie. There, that's a blind spot for them. And so, I thought, yeah, we can't. I do thought that. train spotting would be weird. Yeah, um, also weird because we'd have to go through a toilet bowl, and it's a whole thing. <laughs> that's a different kind of it's horror than I'm willing to deal in with. All of Scotland, the worst toilet in all of Scotland. Uh, I'm. I was very happy you picked this, Arthur. Uh, I'm excited. Dustin, why don't you tell people, we, we've had enough banter, tell people yeah. what they're in for so if they haven't here, tuned in. Here you are tuning in to the second zombie entry in uh, this month's Shocktober. Yeah, Undead uh, Heavy at the top. A little bit, um, but what we do here at the show is analysis, not review, and that does mean there are spoilers. And so uh, what happens to uh, Frank, Frank's monster, and his bride may indeed uh, be revealed before the show is over. If you have not seen this 90-year-old film... At this time. Yeah, be, yeah. We're going to talk about what happens in it. The spoiler embargo really ought to have been lifted. We'll try to be a little careful at first, but by the time we get down to business, um, we're not going to try to be careful at all. We might not be careful from the start. It Honestly, really depends what sort of mood we're in. And, and yeah, the odds of, of carefulness right now with this particular film are slim. The point of this disclaimer is to let you know we got to talk about what happens in the movie, but honestly, you shouldn't be that concerned with it. Uh, you can stop right now and go check it out if you want, uh, but hopefully, ideally, even us talking about it will make you want to watch it more if you haven't seen it. There you go. So, Arthur, you got a synopsis this here movie? Yes. Mm. Synopsis. Good. Um, opening on a dark and stormy night, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley talk up the power of Mary Shelley's story. And there are also discuss- a couple of assholes while they do it. <laughs> <laughs> Friggin' jag-offs. Look at her dull plaintiff. <laughs> Who could have? <laughs> Who would have guessed that this dumb broad would have wrote a good story? <laughs> Fucking stuffed shirt looking guys. I don't know how to appreciate a good woman. The passive aggressive white man Jesus. reared his head uh, early. As they discuss, Mary is convinced to finish the tale. The movie proper begins in media ray as the monster is trapped in the burning windmill and Victor has been injured after being thrown from the top. A few local villagers stick around to see if the fire finished the job, but they realize that was a bad idea as the monster survived in the below-ground portions of the mill. Uh, an entire family was killed, first the daughter and then the parents. Yep. Ah. This movie's got a body count. <laughs> right away. It's not scared to right kill away. any damn body. <laughs> as the monster terrorizes the townspeople, Victor is taken home on what is supposed to be his wedding night. Uh, Elizabeth tends to him as Dr. Pretorius appears. Uh, Pretorius speaks with Victor and reveals he's been creating micro-life, but needs help for a full-sized version. Victor refuses, and Pretorius is back to the drawing board. He crosses paths with the monster and learns how to work with him. He gives him a fat blonde. (laughs) I believe it's a cigar. It is a cigar, but it's very funny. But sometimes a cigar is not just a cigar. His cigar, which is his only vice, if you don't count gin, which is also his only vice. I love Pretorius, sorry. (laughs) My favorite character. Pretorius develops the plot to force Victor to create a mate for the monster. Pretorius's plan works, surprisingly, and he and Victor create a bride of Frankenstein. The bride rejects the monster, who she found on Tinder and decided to not swipe right. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> After the monster realizes that this is not a good idea and he must bring the abomination to an end, he tells Victor to flee with Elizabeth as he blows up the lab, killing himself, the bride, and Pretorius. 
Why he's not mad at the uh, Victor, we don't know. Uh, this is the 1935 sequel to Universal Horror's classic Frankenstein, nominated for an Academy Award for sound recording and bringing in a strong profit. All righty. That's, that's some good stuff. Yes, we all belong dead. That is the note um, that we all learn from Frankenstein's monster here in this uh, film. So, yes, let's do with initial reactions. Arthur, this is your blind spot. Yes. So, do tell me, what was your experience encountering the Bride of Frankenstein for the first time? Uh, this movie is a lot wackier than I realized. Yeah, it is, baby. Uh, but... The Lilliputians was a good indicator, right? <laughs> Uh, I, what, well, I think it kickstarts with the maid who she's is so good, who is doing this whole slack, slapstick routine. Yeah, she is. Uh, straight out of the Nickelodeon. Uh, I mean, she is she is a hoot, uh, and I don't know what you know. She's not really too keen to warn anybody that she just saw the monster, um, which is a weird choice. Well, they all want to get eaten in soul of me. What do I care? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she is she's wacky, and the Doctor Pretorius shows up. <laughs> the, oh my god! I tell you what, this movie moves quick. Uh, it does. This movie's seventy-five minutes, and it does not. It doesn't play at all. It is. It is in Lean. and out. Uh, which is weird because the monster learns to talk like within seconds of meeting somebody, uh, which is you know kind of kind of weird to, to wrestle with. But then you guys kind of forget it because he's just just eating some soup and bread and then smoking, so smoking good. a stogie. That whole sequence, the, yeah, the blind guy is incredible. Yeah, it's really good. It's very, it's very earnest as well. And there's a great human. I mean, Karloff, credited only as Karloff, uh, is so good here. Um, I mean, if, if you're familiar with you know Karloff's work at all, you know he's good. But the way he brings such a level of empathy and humanity to this monster, uh, just through his motions and his you know facial uh, work and stuff like that, is it's, it's great. I mean, he's wonderful. Everybody else is just having the time of their lives uh victor pretorius i i don't even know uh, what kind of movie pretorius is in or what he needs to be in but he is a hoot it's um, camp that's yeah for sure. it is it's fun uh and and it's kind of shocking because i wasn't expecting that high body count you know i i expect maybe one two maybe three people to bite it in, in a film like this but i mean there's like three people that bite it within the first five minutes or so uh which is just Bit brazen. I well, think. in the original movie, he does drown an eight-year-old girl. They do have to top that. I, I guess. Yes, but I mean, that's one body, uh, and here we've got like ten or fifteen. The body yeah. count is high. Yeah, they, they really have... waste no time in letting you know it's a sequel. Yeah, they, they figured out the rules of the sequel: bigger is better. Very quick. <laughs> that they did. Uh, they also realized that uh, they they have to synopsize the entire first movie uh, to get I, you into this. I, one. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that Look, choice, Lord Byron. Ugh. I don't need your nonsense. Ugh. I like that little preamble. I like that I part. Too. Yeah, there's not a book preamble on the original movie. Yeah. We'll get more to that later. So that is an, is it, it's an interesting choice. Yeah. But I think it works. I think it's fun. I, I like that they bring her in. Uh, I, I really wish there was more bride. Well, Elsa Lan Lancaster, too, yeah. which is fun. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie, and I love that they, they credit her as question mark at the yeah. end of the movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I love letting Elsa Lancaster also appear as uh, Mary Shelley to, to get, one, get to have a little more to do. But I think it's very cool. Uh, to have her set up this story, uh, yeah, I, I think it's fun. Um, but yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, it's an easy watch. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it, like you said, it ups the ante and and then definitely tops the first one in that regard. And it looks great. I mean, beautiful uh, sets, beautiful costumes, beautiful designs. Uh, I really appreciate all that about it. So yeah, it's it's a good time. Awesome, awesome. Well, what do you think, Dalton? Do you like the Bride of Frankenstein? I mean, yeah, I hate to be redundant, but I'm right, right there with Arthur. This is my second watch, and, and both times I've seen this movie, look, as Dustin's pointed out, this movie is 90 years old. It's it's an old-ass movie. 
but both times I've watched it, it has the effect of, I mean, I'll, I'll go with some like recent films that our listeners probably know I like, much like moments where John Wick gets kicked through like eight things of glass in, in a row in John Wick 3, or uh, when Mooney runs through Disney World at the end of Florida Project. These are movies, moments that remind you like, oh, damn it, cinema's just cool. Oh, I love movies. Movies are magic tricks. This is great. That's my reaction to the whole of The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, and, for you know, again, maybe it is that that remove of centuries of, you know, decades and decades gone by now. Uh, just a different way of making movies, celluloid, different acting styles, uh, analog special effects. I can't, it, there's so much that it could be that I can't pinpoint any one thing. But there is something just very wonderful about Bride of Frankenstein that the entire time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, that's right. I love movies. I really do. I don't just kind of like them. Movies are magic. Because every moment in Bride of Frankenstein that it could lose me, that it does something that I could not like, you know, uh, I joked around about, you know, how terrible it lets Byron and Shelley or uh, Percy be at the beginning. But then every guy in this movie sucks. Yeah, the every man in this movie is terrible. This movie is not very nice to women. The bride doesn't have enough to do. It's fully insane. The plot is hand-handed like it's real sweaty in terms of getting everybody where they need to be and i don't care not for a moment and again i, I don't know if it's all of these things i've just listed or the 75 minute runtime as arthur stated uh but you just there's something wonderful about this film where it casts a spell on you and you just remember that the fact that any movie has ever been made ever is kind of crazy that anybody's ever been able to figure out how to make movies uh and take things that are very clearly fake and yet, if you light them just right, you can sell something wonderful. Uh, and so, yeah, it totally does it for me, like like those other movie moments I've mentioned. Um, sometimes a film or a moment just, like, really reminds you, oh, that's right, this is why I, I watch all these damn movies. And uh, for me, The Bride of Frankenstein, for its full runtime, just kind of enthralls me. Uh, Arthur has already shouted out uh, one of my favorites, uh, but that's Una O'Connor, who plays Minnie. She's yeah. She very quickly lets you know what kind of movie you're watching. It's like um, there's something about the '30s uh, films for me uh, that they have that quality of uh, Shakespeare plays where you can feel them pandering to both rich people and poor people, and that's something that's really nice. And I don't feel like we get that as much in modern Hollywood cinema. Uh, there, you don't feel them playing to the cheap seats, uh, or when you do, you feel it in much different ways. In 30s movies, they just always let one actor be, like, buck wild. And it's it's usually a maid or, you know, a, a tertiary uh, help. Lionel help. Barrymore. Well, yeah. yeah, because so many movies from early Hollywood are about the aristocracy. It's They always let the downstairs character be the comic relief. But uh, there's just something wonderful about the way, and again, the same way that we like Shakespeare. They let everybody come out and... Uh, you know, do the equivalent of a uh, flipping somebody the bird joke in the opening of a Romeo and Juliet. They let Minnie o uh, or, uh, Una O'Connor just squeal and really get every uh, ounce out of every syllable of her lines. It's incredible. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. I'm glad Arthur picked it. It was great to rewatch it. Dustin, 
What do you think? You like this one, huh? Guys, I love The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's, so good. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 one of the great movies, and it, actually, it's better than the original. Yeah, it is. And uh, part of the reason why is they are able to sort of get the technology more figured out on how to make a sound film and move the camera a little bit more. And so uh, the cinematography is a little bit more unchained there. They're able to figure out that scores are not going to be distracting during the action of a film. And that does help quite a lot. And I've talked about that before with Dracula and with the original Frankenstein and how the movies become a lot more plotting when there isn't that orchestral score added to it. And they figured that out. Um, The performances are great. The set designs are amazing. The costumes Mm. are incredible. Mm. Jack Pierce's makeup work is uh, phenomenal. Everybody's doing what they need to be doing. Uh, I know, you know, Colin Clive is uh, drunk and besotted and has a broken hip or leg at one point. Whoa, really? Uh, yeah, he's got a broken leg, and so he's sitting down for a long section of the film. I know also Karloff breaks his hip at one point during this, and so there's a lot of real struggles that are happening off the set, and they are all still bringing their A game uh, to this. And it does hit those horrific notes, and it does hit those, uh, again, very, very sympathetic notes. And yes, there are some weird things with the plot and we're wondering why suddenly uh, Frank uh, and his monster are now, uh, Frankenstein's monster is now so forgiving towards Henry, I always want to call him Victor. Um, but, yeah, I hate that they changed the name, but what do you mean? But the, yeah, being sort of forgiving towards him and his wife, yet whatever. It's weird, yeah, there's a, it's interesting, we'll probably get to this when we get down to analysis, but it, it's interesting that this decides to crib a little bit more from the novel than the, the original film, but isn't quite sure when and where and how to square that. Yeah. You know? Which makes it further interesting when, uh, oh, what's his bucket? Um, uh, Hamlet. You know who I'm talking about. British guy. Son of a bitch. Uh... Kenneth Branagh's uh, Mary oh, Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, we go. Okay. It, it, sorry, uh, I was I couldn't tell you the thing that I needed to tell you, so you could remind me. I was thinking of Kenneth Branagh uh, when he does his version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That uh, then weirdly cribs from Bride and the novel. Yeah, it's a weird feedback mm-hmm. loop of adaptations on this one. Yeah, it absolutely is. So yeah, I think that uh, them deciding to take a little bit more from the novel and giving the uh, the monster a little bit more personhood. Kind of screws them up on that ending. I'd agree with you there. Yeah. It's, it's weird, the decision-making on that. Yeah, it is is definitely a strange deal. But that being said, it doesn't matter. It is still amazing. And so it's a lot of fun. And so I like Bride of Frankenstein a bunch. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro. And uh, we're going to move right now and expand your syllabus. So... Awesome opportunity. You're teaching a class, and you get to have a module themed around the Bride of Frankenstein. And so, what class are you teaching? What are you trying to get them taught? And then, what uh, ancillary, additional appendices-type readings and or viewings are you adding to the syllabus to get your point across? I go to you first. Dalton, what you teaching with uh, the Bride of Frankenstein? Well, I was... Look, when we started off on this marathon, I, I kind of convinced myself I was going to try and do as many of these as uh, non-horror-themed classes as I could. I was going to try to uh, uh, do non-horror film connections just to kind of keep things interesting. But then Arthur picked Bride of Frankenstein, and I thought of a great class, and it's called, uh, in the voice of a dumb studio executive, But what if the monster was a lady? Uh, so that's the name of this class, but what if the monster was a lady? Uh, because I think Bride of Frankenstein... Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
Bride Frankenstein has the wonderful idea, but wait a second, what if the monster was a lady? And then doesn't do anything interesting with it. And that's, uh, we'll talk more about that when we get to analysis, but it's wild to me that this movie's so good. Uh, because its central premise, uh, its title, in fact, the title character show, does not show up until the last 10 minutes of the movie, maybe? Uh, and it's very interesting to, to see uh, male filmmakers of the 30s go, oh, well, we should give him a wife, and then can't figure out a story that actually involves anything to do with that character. Uh, so we're going to talk about the films that I feel like... Uh, Fulfill the promise and dream of Bride of Frankenstein of what if the monster but a girl. Uh, and all of these movies are movies I like a lot and I think will make for interesting uh, discussion points with this. So we're going to start off uh, with uh, a film that engages the genre I don't really like, but I feel like Bride of Frankenstein it kind of starts uh, this motif of uh, the... Y you could make the argument that the seeds for the rape revenge genre are laid, I feel like, with this film a little bit, just because okay. there is the immediate uh, removal of personhood and uh, the gender politics at play with uh, the bride of Frankenstein v. the OG creation. Uh, so we're going to talk about one of the few films in that that genre that I, I've actually seen, but I really like, and it's the Soska Sisters' American Mary. Yeah, um, Big fan of that movie. Uh, not the least of which for uh, its lead, whose name I'm blanking on, but as uh, you know her from Ginger Snaps and Hannibal, the series. Uh, I really like this movie a lot. Uh, and again, I think kind of starts us off with interesting groundwork because I, I think the thing that's so interesting about uh, when we have female horror, uh, female-centric horror films, one of two, one of the three or four things happens, right? You've got your final girls, you've got your moms in Haunted House, and then you've got your monsters, but because of the nature, I think, of uh, gender in cinema and gender in horror, a lot of the horror-centric uh, films where the uh, female is at least adjacent to the monster or to the monstrous acts, there's always an empathy there. And I think that's interesting. I think American Mary is a fun place to start because despite the fact that she's the titular character in all the marketing, uh, implies that this is a movie about her being spooky, there's a lot more to it going on, and I, I think the Soska sisters uh, really have crafted something really wonderful here. It's Catherine Isabel, by the way. Uh, I feel bad I couldn't think of that mm. name off the top of my dome, uh, and I didn't do my notes well enough. But, uh, yeah, I think they do a really interesting job of playing with this idea of the the horror film in which your, your central character is uh, both the protagonist and the monster of the film in some ways, uh, because that always involves another danger. Uh, so yeah, American Mary, a big fan. I'm trying to skirt around the plot details because it's a film that I, I don't know how many of our listeners have gotten to, and uh, it's something I really think you should check out uh, and has some fun uh, twists and turns. And, you, you know, you're here for Bride of Frankenstein. I'm not going to spoil something you might not have seen. Next up, another film that I, I think takes a lot of these uh, unspoken implications of some of these uh, these horror films and uh takes it to the nth degree it is hard candy with ellen page and patrick wilson uh from david slade i love this film always have uh, I, I caught up with it shortly after it came out actually i kind of got in early on this one i picked it up on dvd on a whim i'm like that title cover looks cool there's like a bear trap and a character like all right and then i watched it i'm like oh this is really cool yeah this one this one got passed around uh the film savvy folks that uh i knew uh in my teen years uh and yeah man i love this movie Ah, oh, I'm so glad uh, this movie exists. Um, I, not the first Ellen Page performance I got to, but the one that I was like, oh, well, this is obviously going to be one of the best actresses around. 
And uh, I sure am glad that that Umbrella Academy show was a hit because uh, Ellen Page to be deserved to be in something that was a hit. It's been a minute, um, but she's been choosier with her roles later in her career, and I uh, applaud that decision uh, because it starts young. It starts with this early move in her career to do something really interesting uh, and play a character with a lot of depth and a lot of nuance and a character that's frightening. Uh, and again, much as we've talked about, this is a horror thriller that, uh, again, sets up stakes uh and characters and then gives you something different than you're expecting uh and look it's it's no mistake uh that ellen page's character is wearing a red hoodie for much of this film they're Mm -hmm. obviously going for a big bad wolf red riding hood motif and again i think a lot of these selections i've gone with do try to take some iconography or um some visual flair from uh, both classic horror films and horror folklore uh, and th- exist late enough in our shared film language that they get to really play with some stuff and play with this imagery that's very evocative and very iconic and use it to say something about uh, the roles that exist within horrific situations, at least the ones that we tend to put on screen. So Hard Candy's my next pick. Really a big fan of that movie. Next, we're going to really embrace the uh the frankenstein uh connections here and we are going to talk about splice uh Ah, i talk about this show uh this movie on the show a lot we will probably get to it eventually uh because i like it that much but it uh, is a film from vincenzo natale uh of cube uh which is another film i like quite a bit but this is a film with adrian brody and sarah Pauly, and yeah they they do some cloning and genetic engineering and they build uh a lady clone that splice with animal dna look the movie's not it's we're not here for the science we're here for the ethical questions and the the spooky situations and the dilemmas and it does a really great job of playing number one with the the classic uh scientists conceit of frankenstein and the morality therein and i'm sure we will talk about that a lot when we get to analysis but then it introduces the you know, the same kind of questions that you get in something like an ex machina about, okay, what happens when a dude makes a lady thing? Is this guy going to start coveting it? Is it going to be a weird sex thing? And maybe probably I'm going to let you watch splice and find out, but every weird sex question you, uh, you think about when you think, uh, what happens when a couple uh, of scientists, uh, this movie is a horny movie, by the way, I cannot understate that. Uh, what happens when two horny scientists who are doing, uh, cloning decide to put aside their ethics and, uh, put their lust for each other instead of, uh, you know, a baby they made with their parts into a baby they made with science. Oh, all the creepy stuff starts happening. It's so gross and so weird. And again, I think is engaging with a lot of these traditional horror ideas and then going, but what if a lady and getting somewhere a little bit more interesting than Elsa Lancaster's kick-ass scream. Um, so that's, uh, I, I think, a really going to be a linchpin of this class and probably going to be one of the last things we uh, check out. Uh, before we finally come to this one's going to be a double header, uh, mostly because one of them is super new and hard to canonize, and one's something we talk about all the time. It's going to be a Midsummer Jennifer's Body smash up uh, because these both take all these questions we've been wrestling with and puts a little magic on it, baby. Uh, Jennifer's Body, you have some overt uh, demon invoking magic, and uh, you get the legend of the succubus and uh, this this monster that has been created by. Um, uh, well, frankly, evil men. And again, this has been the through line that we've got through a lot of this, including with American Mary. It's going to play with some of those uh, rape revenge tropes, but doing things. Uh, Jennifer's body finds ways to talk about a lot of really interesting horror tropes and uh, 
uh, still keep itself very lighthearted and watchable and funny, and that has a lot to do with Diablo Cody's screenplay and Karen Kasama's great direction and the awesome performances uh, from uh, everybody involved. I'm not going to list the cast of that film. You know who's in it. Uh, and then Midsommar, yeah, I, I, ooh, I love that movie. First of all, uh, but again, I think says, okay, sometimes magic's not magic. Sometimes it's just a bunch of scary white people who've been doing the same thing for 500 years and make everybody eat a handful of magic mushrooms before they do it. Sometimes magic's just saying you're doing magic. Again, it's magic, and that's just how it works. I don't know. White people are scary. There's a reason some of us got out of Europe. Uh, <laughs> we did a <laughs> shitty job of doing it, uh, but some of us got out because we were tired of all the weirdos. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I love Midsommar. Uh, I've been hearing a lot about some of the more overt white supremacy stuff in the director's cut, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, well, a lot of the... Uh, I, I've seen pieces talk about, um, hey, it's interesting how quick the cult kills the people of color that uh, come and visit them, huh? And uh, yeah, I guess the director's cut gets a little bit more into the implicit... Uh, racism of this uh, the Scandinavian cult, mm. uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a whole lot going on in Midsummer that we could literally do an entire miniseries about that pod or that movie. Uh, I like it a lot. And again, I think Danny, uh, without spoiling too much, is that Florence Pugh's character's name in that movie? I think it's Danny. I think so. That feels right. right. Yeah, let's I, go with it. Yeah, look, I don't care about character names. Yeah, you're a man. You don't care about the woman's name. No, I don't know. I don't know anybody's name in that movie. I, there's there's the guy with the piss log played by uh, what's his doodle from Bandersnatch. I always forget his name too. You got Jack O'Connor uh, with his adorable dick flopping in the wind. I love this movie. Uh, but again, I I think the fun thing about Midsummer is. The ways in which it never goes where you think it's going to go, and again, this is a very new movie, so I won't spoil much, but the path that Danny chooses to walk down uh, is a path that she gets put down by the dumbasses that are around her, both the, the dumbasses she went to the village with and the dumbasses that live in the village. This is a movie full of dum-dums, uh, and I kind of like a movie that lets everybody be dumb and lets their different uh, proclivities and emotional hang-ups and... Um, their their needs just kind of crash into each other. Uh, and it's, again, a very unconventional horror film, uh, but because it is kind of the big horror film of 2019 uh, and is very not just female-centric uh, in terms of its protagonist, but also very much concerned with gender dynamics, I think a very fun place to end this conversation of, but what if the monster was a lady? And that's my class. All righty. You know, I'm enrolling. Thank that's, you very uh, much. He just pitched his new podcast, too. Yeah, it sounds like he did, yeah. Thanks, guys. I was pretty, I was pretty proud of this. He just made a whole new show right there. Yeah. Uh, we don't piss on hospitality. I won't we, allow we it. We can't allow it. I can't allow it. Um, so, hey, Arthur. How hey. Would, how would you expand the syllabus if you were making this here um, movie into a class module? What I, I, I touched on this earlier in my review, and what I love about this so much is... Um, and I think both Lancaster and and Karloff are capable of bringing out this empathy in, in both of their creatures so so quickly, especially with uh, Elsa Lancaster, who's only in it for like as the creature, as the bride for five minutes, maybe. Yeah. Like I mean, it's real quick, but she does so much in that time. I mean, very economic use of screen time uh, there. Uh, so I I really want to explore this idea of the uh, the empathetic monster. Hell yeah, yeah. And that's something. Tragic villains are always something that are fascinating to me. I mean, automatically kind of gives them more depth. Uh, especially when you play it well. And I'm going to stick right there in the Universal Cycle uh, to begin with. I'm going to go with Lon Chaney Jr. as as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Good um, 
And, and more so in the sequels, when you see, I think, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, when he's had time to really sit with this and he knows about this monster that's inside of him and he can't control. Yeah, he gets uh, to be proto-Hulk. Yeah, and there's a lot of that anxiety, there's a lot of that pain, there's a lot of that tragedy that he carries on. You know, when the Wolfman begins, he's a very confident, very handsome, very well-off man, and, and then he's afflicted by this wolf spite. Puberty will do that to you. It's a son of a gun. And so... uh uh, he just plays it so well, though. I mean, right next to Karloff, maybe even more so than Karloff. I, I think he's so great at generating empathy with the way he looks, the way he moves his body, just slouching and very, very uh, restrained in a lot of ways. And, and so I would stick right there uh, for a little bit, do some, maybe some Bride of uh, Frankenstein then. And then from there, I'm going to move up a little ways. Uh, and I'm going to move into uh, the 50s, and I'm going to go with uh, Gojira. Uh, oh, hell yeah. I want to talk about Godzilla. I want to talk about... Uh, you know, that analogy for uh, what we did uh, to Japan uh, and, and talk about, you know, this Godzilla didn't want to be created. He just it happened because America sucks. And uh, we got this monster out of it. And he's just trying to live his best life. And man got in the way. And so I, I want to explore those ideas that are present in, in Gojira. Uh, and then from there, I want to go with uh, the actual I want to go with William Castle's 13 Ghosts, the original 1960 Ooh, version. Nice. Uh, because I think the conceit of that movie is so much more interesting than the remake. Uh, because in that, there are ghosts that have been collected by this capitalist dude who's doing research or whatever and exploiting these creatures. Um, but the ghosts aren't bad. They're, they're very scary to begin with. You, you know, you, you're led to believe that they're evil. Um, but they're not. They're, they're mostly all just unrestful spirits. Uh, and I think that's a much more interesting conceit than the the sequel where all of them are crazed killers. Uh, and, and you find out in the, the original 13 Ghosts that, as always, the r- real humans are, are the real monsters. Go figure. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I think it explores that in some really interesting ways, and I appreciate that a lot. Uh, from there, I'm going to go with uh, 1980s. I'm going to go with The Fly, the Cronenberg Fly we watched yeah. earlier this year. Uh, Very good. Does Jeff deserve some of it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, does he bring out a lot of empathy after he's transformed? And uh, we get to that final scene where she's got to put him down. And, man, that puppet. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. puppet can do it for you. Yeah, man. Um, a lot of heart there, a lot of tragedy, a lot of emotion. I, I we talked that. about this on the show. Gina yeah. Davis and uh, Jeff Goldblum are both so damn good in Very that good. movie. Yeah, and, and the, the way they play that sequence at the end is, is phenomenal. Uh, from there, I'm going to go into the 2000s. I'm going to go with Spider-Man 2, and I'm going to go with Doc Ock. Oh, uh, interesting. Right. Make a little genre interesting jump. Interesting non-horde pick. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Otto Octavius <sighs> is a monster, and Raimi frames it like a horror film from the setup For where sure. he does that lab experiment gone wrong. I mean, it's shot like a horror film, and there's a lot of Raimi's you know, touchstones in that. You'd love to see Alfred Molina's best performance of all time be in probably the biggest movie he's ever been in. Yeah. You'd love to see it go down that way. Cause he's... Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> I mean, look, you could you could argue one of his best performances in Boogie Nights because uh, he's so fun in that. But man, he's just absolutely fantastic in Spider-Man Two, and I think him. I mean, Defoe's almost there, but I think Alfred Molina figures out how big a deal superhero movies are almost before any of the other actors that they get for these movies because he does not. I mean, sure. Defoe chooses the scenery. That's, I mean, he he did the the exact same route that uh, old old Jack Nick did. Yeah. Uh, for Batman, but yeah, you're so right, Arthur. Molina brings so much to Doc Ock, and again, a character that in his original comic incarnations is just you know an egomaniacal scientist, and uh, really finds a way to broaden that character and and give him some pathos. Yeah, I love that genre jump, man, because. 
oof. And again, you just love to see. Molina's so good. And uh, the fact that uh, that movie was such a giant success and uh, he's so good in it means uh, we're always going to be treated Alfred Molina for the rest of his career. That's nice. great. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to forget how good Alfred Molina was because, you know, look, the people Spider-Man. who grew up watching Spider-Man yeah. 2 are making films now. Yeah. Bingo. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, from there, i got a couple more entries. Uh, another one kind of wrapping up this element of it, though, is The Shape of Water. Guillermo del Toro's uh, take on the creature from the Black Lagoon and mm-hmm. playing in that kind of idea and world and, man... Doug Jones is so good uh, mm. in that in that bodysuit and bringing. I mean, without zero lines of dialogue, he just nails it and, yeah. and just kills it. And, and I I love that movie a lot. And what Del Toro is doing with it, this kind of homage to the classic, but also very prescient at the time. And I I, I like that a lot. And there I want to go to this little subversion of this, and it's The Ring and Samara. Uh, where that film treats Samara as this kind of tragic. I mean, she's got a very tragic story. I mean, yeah, she was murdered true. by the family, but. Uh, she was just evil. Yeah. Uh, evil incarnate. It's a good twist, yeah. man. It's and a so great twist. That little thing at the end is, is you know, you let her out. Is, you it's idiot. a great bit. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, that's where I would kind of end this with that subversion there, uh, where it's played that way, but then we got that fun little twist. So that's that's what I would go with. Nice. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, now, Arthur went... Uh, I, I like that Arthur and I's classes are kind of related in some ways. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, we took different paths on uh, the, the things that Bride of Frankenstein has to say about movie monsters but uh, and, and how that pertains to... I think the empathy we get for the creatures in this movie, Dustin. What did you What did you make, man? I went in a completely yeah. different route. Um, I kind of figured I, you might. Have. What, what you do? I, I went I went industrial with it because hell yeah, because I mean, check this out. Th- this hell movie yeah, and this yeah. cycle of movies is what saves Universal Pictures from Poverty Row. It keeps them mm. in the movie business. Hey, and, no Universal monsters, no Fast Five, baby. It, well, <laughs> certainly, I mean, no, no. I mean, we no, talk about the no long, Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. Say. We talk yeah. about the long arc of uh, actor careers and director careers. This is a long arc of a studio output, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, Universal would have gone under uh, with several others, you know, and they uh, other film studios found their way out. But the way in which uh, Universal found their way out was with the monster cycle, uh, because these movies turned a humongous profit. The MCU of their day, man. And and the reason why they were able to do that, there are some economic factors, there are some industrial practices, and there are also some technological factors that are at work as well because this is 1935 of course the original frankenstein comes out in 1931 sound enters you know sort of the saturation uh, of cinemas in 1928 at least it begins to do that and then by the time the 30s hit um, fully integrated sound is a thing in films and so the first reference i would have now i don't have any movies at all i got books i, we, 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 I mean this is like the class yeah I mean, this, this is this is a real film history class you're doing this film history class and we're talking about the 30s right now and uh, we're using bright Frankenstein as our film. We're going to also use uh, Robert Spadoni's Uncanny Bodies, which is a book I've talked about before, Mm -hmm. and it is about the sort of coming of the sound film and the way in which sound itself provided a bit of an uncanny valley for original audiences. And so it is both a cognitive sciences approach, it's a little Freudian as an approach, and it's also um, you know a technological approach to history. Uh, And so by examining how Elsa Lancaster's scream and uh, other moments like that provided a lot of that terror yeah. uh, for those original audiences because yeah the movie might play pretty hokey and we might say oh you know Frankie's not really that scary but it was 
in some senses, the technology itself made it more terrifying for those audiences, and that's part of why these film franchises uh, or this film cycle was so successful. People like to be scared. They do. And uh, the way in which they were being scared is that, oh my goodness, the sound's coming out of this, again, strange body that is larger than life on the screen there before me. Uh, then I'm going to move into Thomas Schatz's The Genius of the System and just talk about all those industrial practices. There's a couple chapters on Universal in there uh, in the 30s and also afterward in which uh, they were able to capitalize on this particular cycle and turn a profit despite the fact that it's, it, a lot of people weren't going to the movies because it was the 1930s and it was the Great Depression. Nobody had any money. And the money was gone and yet they still were able to turn massive profits over during that time. And so shots is going to be very important to that as well. Then I want to move into one of the things that the movie bookends when it opens up with Lord Byron and Percy B. Shelley being complete punks and uh, just poncy, flouncy, rich boys. Yeah, and the two type britches. Anyway, uh, I'm not a fan. Not a fan at all of these cats. You look, you look at guys like that, and you just think about where their what their ancestors are doing, and you know it's bad. Yeah, let's look. I'm not saying my ancestors are clean, but you know, they, they don't own any castles, baby. There are faces that are punchable at starts, and then there are faces that once speaking starts, it becomes exponentially worse. These are the latter. They, they, I mean, credit to our, our actors here. They really don't have a lot to do in this movie, but they sell the one scene they have. They really do. They do. And what I want to suggest is that opening sequence is, in part, a gesture towards a certain kind of uh, credibility, a certain kind of pretense uh, for this film. That it's not yeah. just this, you know, scary, you know, movie for the kiddies to, you know, you know. It's high. Li- it's about high literature. Yeah, and and so I, I think talking about adaptation and the acquisition of adaptation rights and so I have two texts that I would do with that uh, first of all is uh, Robert Schnaum's Dialogics of Adaptation which we've talked about quite a lot and sort of looking at what, what's, what the novel is doing and then how that compares to what we encounter here with Frankenstein but then I'm going to recommend another novel not Mary Shelley's Frankenstein rather I'm going to recommend F. Scott Fitzgerald The Loves of the Last Tycoon which is a thinly veiled biography of Irving Thalberg and a lot of his practices working the writers rooms um, make significant plot points in this novel huh. about how he puts together these these teams of writers and that industrial practice of producing scripts so that these texts can come out. And then lastly, we would read Robert Flory's uh, screenplay for Frankenstein. Robert Flory, uh, famous uh, experimental film artist who later goes on into television, directs quite a few Twilight Zone episodes uh, and whatnot. But uh, Robert Flory wrote a treatment for Frankenstein, which basically James Whale stole, which is uh, sort of an evidentiary oh, artifact cool. of the same kind of Thalberg-esque. And I realized Thalberg was at MGM, not at Universal, but those practices were pretty standard standardized across uh, the moving uh, picture studios uh, in the 1930s. And so wrestling with that production history and then how credit is dealt with, um, again, as an industrial study of the 30s using Bride as our urtext. I mean, you can just follow that class up with a class about... About, uh, the ways in which TV and film uh, borrow from each other. It's, that's interesting to me. I didn't know that about uh, the 30s system that was more run by producers, that they had writer's rooms. It makes more sense, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Uh, just based on the way that uh, what, what I do know about production in the 30s. Thalberg would send teams of two. He would get two people start working on a treatment. Yeah. And then if he um, doesn't like what he's seeing in the treatment, he gets two more people taking their treatment and working behind them. And he might get two more people working behind them. And he'll give credit in sort of disparate ways to numbers of the teams throughout and use a final treatment. And the same with the screenplay itself or individual scenes or whatever. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, this is 
is how uh, writers' rooms for TV shows work. But again, it's not that dissimilar to how uh, big scripts that you know things that are pre-planned blockbuster scripts work now. And a lot of hands touch them before the people who are finally credited, yeah. uh, especially on our. Uh, you know the the way that uh, the uh, the team over at Lucasfilm under Kathleen Kennedy plans Star Wars and Kevin Feige and the way that his team plans Marvel. Yeah, it's it's interesting how these cycles work, dude. and it's not a new thing. No, and so uh, that would be uh, the way in which I would tackle uh, using Bride of Frankenstein. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got considerably longer. Dustin's gonna make you read books because he's mean. I am a, not a nice he's guy. He's an evil teacher. Well, and I was too stupid to uh, go find any books that. Uh, Probably men, women, and chainsaws, right? I mean, that's probably, yeah, that's the, probably text the place to go yeah. that we should have in my class. I'm going to make Dustin pick the books out for my class. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Hey, uh, that and I think it's fun. What time is it? It's time to get down to business. It's business. That's right, dear listener, and we're back with that business, which is mm-hmm. analysis. And I think. I want to say that we have done enough industrial stuff, unless you guys just want to talk about this movie's gross at the box office to sort of set the frame. No, I do want to briefly talk about Mary Shelley, though. Yes, uh, please. Because she basically invents sci-fi horror yes. with Frankenstein, and it, man, it just owns, dude. Mm-hmm. 18, it's real cool. 1816, she basically starts an entire new, like, not just genre, but aesthetic. And sure, like the visuals of that aesthetic don't get really like codified until the advent of the 30s, and we're making a lot of movies. Uh, but I mean, she invents uh, steampunk in a lot of ways. I mean, just this idea of uh, Victorian technology that is beyond the limits of Victorian science, right? Um, and not again, I care less about steampunk than I do sci-fi horror. But uh, that's two separate things that she invents right there. Uh, it's it's just such a big damn deal. And it's like that beige gothicism, too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's part of what we have to think of it as. And then gothic itself is a major influence here as well. For sure. Which finds its way in the modernist expression of gothicism, German expressionism. Yeah. Right. And so those aesthetics are also coming to play in here as well, even though this is not the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This is not, you know, the, La- the man who laughs or Nosferatu or anything like that. It does use the same kind of chiaroscuro filmmaking. It does use the same kind of shade and shadows. I mean, the arches of the inside sort of, uh, I don't know, receiving room chamber of Henry Frankenstein's estate, uh, those are really, really intentional. I mean, the entire film set on sets. Um, There's no part of this movie that was ever shot outside on location anywhere. And so it was all built to fit those uh, particular kinds of framings uh, where you are seeing, again, those those corners and edges that would, again, very much bring to memory uh, Caligari, even though it's not quite so stylized as that. And so you see that, I guess... What year's Caligari? 30... Uh, Oh, gosh, 19... Older than that. Oh, is it teens? Teens or 20s, yeah. Or maybe early 20. That makes sense, because expressionism's already around at this point. Point. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. been a hot minute. At that I was point. just thinking about the actual novel itself, but you're right. I mean, in terms of the visuals of this this film, and really, I, I'm basically all of those first like five or six Universal films are a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about uh, again, it's an epistolary novel, uh, so it's all written in letters. But there's a real, um, it's not super invested in the science of it, but it's invested in it enough, and it gives enough detail about like the collection of the bodies and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, I just there's a whole mood and tone to that book, and again that mash of uh, what could human beings create and what could they do, and uh, what will those uh, things they create, what terror will that bring? Like, and 
She invents the idea of androids before we even had a conception of robots. Like, yeah, again, yeah. I'm, I'm just in love uh, with all the things uh, that can directly trace their lineage to Frankenstein. So I, I just want to talk about what a big damn deal it is. But you're absolutely right in terms of the visuals of it. Mm-hmm. An even bigger damn deal uh, in that in that way. I mean, it's, it's, doing, it's a hugely it's influential test. Massive text. streams of aesthetics are coming through this. Yeah. You know? And then, of course, a big thematic thing that I think that you're touching on as well within the science fiction realm is the horror of science fiction is almost always this... Man I- should not meddle! Yeah. Yeah, well, they're, 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 we, we are um, so ambitious, we don't wait to question. You know, and that can be framed theologically like it is in in Frankenstein, or it can be framed uh, ethically like it is in Jurassic Park. Um, But it can be framed in any number of ways. It can be framed in how equipped is the human, a a film that we've talked about in the show that I didn't love at the time, but the more I think about it, I kind of start liking it more. Event Horizon, like, uh, are you sure your feeble human mind is prepared for the secrets of the universe? You fucking... uh, uh, Icarus looking dum dum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has such sights to show you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I, you're absolutely right. Like, there's a lot of avenues it can take, but uh, they're all basically, uh oh, what you doing, buddy? Yeah, or something that might just bring out the worstness, like the Matrix. Yeah, right. Uh, and so those kinds of, of themes. And again, I used to call this, you know, a conservatism that that runs throughout. And I and I still want to stay with that. I, I do think there's a certain regressiveness that that typifies that tendency. But I, I, I'm going to soften that a little bit because there is generally a, a, a true kind of caution that is running through this as well. And I'm, I'm thinking about again, like. Oh, the Will Smith zombie movie that we're not talking about. I am legend. I am legend. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You that know, one. which is this idea that you you figured out a way to uh, make a virus that will sort of correct a particular disease. I think it's cancer of some sort. Um, but you don't take enough time to trial study it to see what it does, and as a result, you unleash something on humanity that you. Because again, it's you're in such a hurry to put it out there. You're such in a hurry to take credit. You're in such a hurry to make some money off of it that uh, those ambitions sort of get in your way. And so I do think there is a certain kind of wisdom that goes with it. So I don't want to simply just like lambast it with this sort of again um, regressive conservatism, that... ludditism, right? Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. You don't want to attach something that's got. Uh, that's weighted politically in this day and age to right. these ideas. Because you're right, there, there's a certain amount of, uh, look, regressiveness is no good, right? We should, mm-hmm. like, science is important, good. But uh, I think there is something valid, especially uh, as many uh, smart people as we have saying things like, uh, my AI might already be out of hand. We might mm-hmm. have already, like, put into motion things we don't understand. Uh, yeah, Skynet I, may already be self-aware. Yeah, it might already be happening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That, those kind of ideas that uh, you hear floating around uh, out there from certain corners of the tech industry. I think those ideas are interesting and, again, speak to this, like, uh, not all eschewment of technological innovation is inherently bad, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's maybe we shouldn't mechanize this thing because there's too many people it'll put out of work. Right. Uh, there, it's not always just an idea that's you know anti uh, intelligentsia, anti uh, science. Right. And and that's some, something I just wanted to sort of touch on. Yeah, Again, I that's, get you. That's a common topic that we hit on. When we get into this this particular avenue of horror. So I didn't want to yeah, live there, but I we've I, addressed it. But I felt like there was a need to at least soften some of the language when we think about it a little bit too. Oh, just, I think that was know, a good idea. A little nuance to it. Um, now themes. Um, there are many ways in which one could read this, and one of those readings is indeed a uh, sort of uh, uh, 
subversion of the Christ myth, because there is a lot of theological stuff here. We do have the monster on the cross. We do have resurrection. We do have a last supper of bread and wine that is consumed in the hermit's hut. We do have a lot of the pieces of Christian iconography, and uh, you know that does raise a certain set of questions. To what extent did the filmmakers seek to do this? And I, apparently some of the Christian terminologies were even more explicit before really? the Hayes office got a hold of it and said, hey, tone down the yeah. Bible stuff. Checks out. Huh. Because um, that's going to be really offensive. Yeah. Because this is um, this is code Hollywood at this point. Yeah, what uh, Hayes code goes into full effect 34? 34, 30, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's right before this. So, Yeah, it, so I know it's not too much before this, but I was thinking about that watching the movie, thinking about that, uh, why they were letting Henry Frankenstein go. I actually had to look it up. Uh, because I was like, why are they letting him go? I thought this was post-code. Like, I'm still a little surprised Henry Frankenstein doesn't get a comeuppance of any kind in this movie. Yeah, and it, he deserves it because... Oh, and I think know. it's probably why they introduced uh, Praetorius, right? They have to have a, a villain of the film. A real mustache-twirling yeah. kind of villain. Well, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein comes late enough in the Universal Monster movies, they know they might have to keep Henry alive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they literally bring him back from the dead, because he is... Very dead at the end of the first movie. Correct. They get very clever with their, their franchising. It's their first sequel. Of course, it's easy to bring Boris and Elsa back if you want to, because they're already dead. Bingo. Right? So, yeah. yeah, we've already got that. But you got to keep Henry alive, because you already need to bring him back for the sequel. Right, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, th- I mean, there's there's those things working at the film. But there there is, again, this sort of... And this is this is true of all zombie fiction, of all undead fiction, this sort of reversal of resurrection or parody of resurrection and this parody of consumption. The zombies we talked about last week, but, you know, the zombies are eating one part of the uh, communion, um, you know, uh, combination of elements, you know, body. They're eating body. Vampires are doing the other half by drinking blood. And so those things all sort of play into something sort of theological. But the theological game that I think most of the film is playing is... Is that is when we play God, our creation is always going to be considerably less perfect than uh, what God made, which makes an argument about human beings that I'm not quite sure I want to get behind, um, because it does argue for a greater perfection of people than maybe I'm comfortable well, with. Well, I guess this is to me the thing that I find so interesting about you know the idea of uh, the subtitle, right? The modern Prometheus, yes, the stealing the fire from the gods. Like the ideas that are most interesting about this don't really get explored uh, much in the films. But again, the, these general plot points and ideas that go on to I mean, give us things like uh, well, Prometheus, uh, mm-hmm. a film fundamentally about. Uh, Say what you will about Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I like those movies a lot more than most people, but I think even if you don't like them, you can agree. There's a lot of interesting stuff Ridley Scott's wanting to do with uh, the just the idea of human-made life, right? And what does that life look like? Is it better than us? Is it more petty than us? Uh, is it more perfect than us? Uh, is it worse than us psychologically and better than us physically? And uh-oh, is that a bad combo? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of these things. What is it... Uh, specifically the way it rears its head in Frankenstein that you're thinking about. Well, I mean, Frankenstein, I think, is definitely making the argument is uh, there there are jobs that belong to God and there are jobs that don't belong to us. And it does sort of have this very hierarchical sort of approach, you know, which, again, I mean, you you, you have it in the very opening when you have um, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, um, you know, played by Elsa Lancaster, having the, he's like, they're not understanding the real theme is that you've taken the place of God. And if you do that, you'll not make human beings in God's image. You'll make monsters. 
Um, and uh, it doesn't really sort of fully wrestle with that, other than that sort of regressive thing that we've already touched on a moment yeah. ago. Um, but it is about sort of usurpation um, more than it is about exploration or about just what it is, what image would we be making something in if we did try to create something of our own, which would be more interesting. And uh, I think it is in the novel, but it is sort of dumbed down for the book, or yeah. not the book, the movies. Well, and again, you know, it takes us another 150 years to like even start thinking of the idea of uh, artificial intelligences mm -hmm. and and, and um, uh, androids and, you know, these ideas that we get to in the 50s and 60s, the 1950s and 1960s. But again, we're talking 1816. Like, this is one of the first times it's occurred to somebody it's early. since. I mean, like, you've got golems and Jewish folklore, and, you know, there's plenty of examples of human made automatons throughout, like, human myth making. Uh, but it is like the idea of androids don't exist yet, but it is that same idea that because, again, Frankenstein in the novel is a fully formed consciousness that's yeah. not childlike and at all. eloquent. An yeah, eloquent consciousness. Yeah. And does share more in line with, you know, uh, Michael Fassbender's David from from Prometheus mm -hmm. uh, films that we've talked about. And again, I think the idea of book. Uh, what's his name? In the, doesn't he give himself a name in the book? Uh, Proteus. Oh, it is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, which is the name of the close to the name of the professor in the movie. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's on purpose or not. Uh, but yeah, I, the idea of not only what will human beings create, but again, I think as you mentioned, the idea that's bigger and more interesting in the novel that I think we get to in later, uh, you know, automaton fiction, whatever. Uh, you know whether it's iRobot uh, or Blade you know, Runner, Blade Runner. Well, again, we've got a whole lot of Philip K. Dick talking about these ideas. Uh, but whatever story it is, it is not just what will we create, but how will it feel about having been created? And we do get a little of that in the movie with the lines like "I liked being dead." Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Pro Proteus having one of my favorite lines of the movie: "You're wise in your generation," which yeah. is a fucking great <laughs> line for that character so to have. Funny. But I think it's a again, it, it takes this thing that you're talking about, Dustin, to the next level, right? It, well, what a besmirchment to God that we've done. But again, the more important question, what have you done to this thing that this you thing created that you made, for yeah. no reason other than you could? Uh, again, getting back to our Ian Malcolm uh, talk, yeah. uh, you didn't stop, as you said, you didn't bother to think, what should you? Are you prepared to be responsible for the first in a new line of consciousness? You fucking idiot. <laughs> of course you're not. Yeah, and I think what this does is it demonstrates two things, um, what we're discussing right now in a way that the sort of the uh, radical edges of Shelley's novel are kind of sanded off uh, for the course of the Hollywood film, is the same thing that we encounter with uh, the film's usage of German Expressionism, mm -hmm. is that in the same way that you might use these sort of extreme visual stylings to, again, sort of articulate a particular understanding of psychology, of the human being, and of trauma and reaction to it, which is sort of what German Expressionism is born out of, you sand the edges off of it and you say yeah but it is kind of creepy right and so we'll use it because it makes you feel kind of un uh, you know you're, spooked. It, it, you're you're off kilter just a hair so we'll we'll take that but we'll sand again some of the radical message off of that and i think they do the same thing to the novel is they they sand off the real sort of investigation and it does become the sort of basic well you know uh, curves and crosses and graveyards aren't they scary little mist isn't that scary also what would be scary is if human beings decide to play god that would be awful right and let's see what it looks like by making a creation it'll be a monster and it'll ravage the countryside rather than wrestling with the questions that you're saying well i think what you've just mentioned dustin uh kind of gets us to the thing that's interesting about 
not just this film, but a lot of Universal m- monster movies, right? We, we've we already name-checked, and we've talked about on this podcast before, the similarities between this cycle of film and, and the current cycle of superhero films. Yeah. But it, it's interesting that the the similarly interesting delineation is that all of these films, the Universal monster movies and the Marvel movies, have like a big E-on-the-I chart thematic point, right? And they lack a little depth outside of that. Yeah. But they are fundamentally invested in Hey, dang, aren't movies magical, though? Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, it's hard to say if 90 years from now any of the MCU movies will be that interesting. It depends if we still have computers or not. Uh, if we forget what computers are but still know what movies are, that will be a very interesting time to be alive. Uh, but, yeah, exactly. We still know all the film techniques that exist from Bride of Frankenstein is my point. Right. And there is that... I don't know. It's there's something very magical about Bride of Frankenstein, despite this again thematic shallowness that's there. I think, as you mentioned, because a lot of the edges have been sanded off. There's only so much there. Again, I think there's a lot of subtext we can mine here in a second. But again, I think as far as the actual text of the film being a little shallow, it is interesting that in spite of that, it can invoke this sense of like, oh damn, but isn't it all cool? Mm-hmm. Because it is so damn cool. Uh, as you've talked, I mean, look, German expressionism looks great. We stopped doing it because it doesn't look great. It only looks great in black and white. I don't think you could even uh, do that style, right? I mean, how do you do that style? It's a neo-noir. I mean, that's the closest we have to it. German Expressionism goes from these horror films to noir to your neo-noirs, but it mutates so much along the way that it doesn't kind of keep these European Gothic roots uh, that turns into its own type of uh, gothicism in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? Right, absolutely. So, um, I mean, there are a number of other readings. Does anybody want to offer one, or where do you want to go? I mean, there's a queer reading. Colin Clive was bisexual. James Whale was gay. Um, there could be some... No kidding. Yeah, so... Well, do you want to speak? I mean, is there any, you know, I've read some, you know, the talk of this kind of leading to the development of camp mm-hmm. and the origins of camp. I, and I think the camp sort of uh, sensibility is, is, is isolated to our um, housekeeper. Yeah. And also <laughs> Many... to Pretorius. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's where we're finding that. Yeah. You have your, your villain who is kind of very high camp and your, uh, the peasant surrogate mm-hmm. uh, who is very high camp. Yeah. And I think those are, the classes that you're less afraid as a filmmaker to be making, right? You can make fun of anybody on either end of the spectrum uh, real hard mm-hmm. uh, and and use it to kind of get the audience one way or the other. They'll either enjoy laughing uh, at somebody that kind of looks like them or they'll enjoy laughing at somebody who doesn't look like them. And I think there's also part of the camp aesthetic found in the hair and makeup for Elsa Lancaster as That's well. so oh, damn yeah. good. Uh, it is, it you is know so... that wasn't under that bandage. Come on. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a great look. But yeah, it's uh, just so good. But but uh, what, Tim Curry in... Um, oh, yeah, Rocky, and, uh, Horror. Rocky Horror. Rocky yeah. Horror, you know. There's so much... Uh, I mean, the makeup, the hair... Yeah, there is some super big seeds to a lot of camp to come uh, in that, that makeup. And uh, learning about uh, the queerness of uh, some of the crew involved, like, that kicks a lot of ass, man. I like that a lot. I like that it gets to be part of that lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah, it's easy for, you know, three of us to sit around and call something camp. But for there to, uh, to exist already, like, uh, a lineage there, that kicks ass. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, it's definitely connected in the dots to that. I like that. You know, and then, and then there's just sort of sexual desire as a sort of animating animus, right? Uh, and then, companionship doesn't comp- even have... I, I think this film's not as horny as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little horny with uh, Pretorius's tiny people. 
Um, yeah. Which is, oh, that man. But that's, that's the thing, though. Is like this, that's these, a, kind of a separate sequence. Like, it kind of doesn't impact the film in any way. There's, there's a way in which what we're seeing is id kind of unbridled. Yeah. And we're seeing, like, human e- human egos operating without the sort of governance of superegos. So the, yeah. there, there, there's something, you know, id-driven even in Pretorius, even in Henry Frankenstein. But they are sort of better able to maintain that on that sort of, uh, you know, floor-level, ego-level sort of basis. Basis. And yet that id sort of when it does, uh, you know, overrun them, what it does is it unleashes greater and greater forces of more and more idness um, to sort of control and destroy the world, you know, in the form of Frankenstein and even Elsa Lancaster. I mean, she is, um, you know, as the bride, it's it's just fear and reaction, you know, that goes in this sort of repulsion and horror. And that's when we sort of get into Julia Kristeva's idea of abjection. And uh, sort of the otherness of death and of ourselves and of these parts of ourselves that we don't want to talk about. And that there are parts of us that, again, it seems like Boris Karloff's monster is sad that the old blind man will not be a friend that lasts. But Steele continues to search for friendship and searches for friendship even with Pretorius, even though I don't think he totally trusts Pretorius. It seems like he's wise. It's hard to tell, but I I like that Karloff finds so much nuance in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't lose hope until he loses hope of a sexual partner. That's a fair point. You're right. And that is where he's like, well, you know, I mean, I'd like to have a buddy, but if I can't have a buddy, that's fine. Long as, you know... I can get my dead rocks off. That's what really matters. And, I mean, that that seems to be the thing there, right? Well, and he's a, a fair bit uh, more nuanced. And, again, this speaks to we've, we've dabbled a little bit in the, the casual misogyny of this film. But mm-hmm. uh, Pretorius uh, straight up says, uh, well, hey, don't worry. If she doesn't like you, you can, uh, you know, take her by force if you need to, bud. Yeah. Uh, You're so, big and strong. Yeah, man, Pretorius sucks. Yeah. But it's, it's great to let, I don't know, I, the monster... Choosing to stay dead, uh, as as we learned from uh, Pet Cemetery, sometimes dead's better. Uh, yes. The and as Dustin has mentioned, we have a lot of examples of uh, the return to life that isn't what it's supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout fiction, whether it's you know your your Pet Cemeteries, your episodes of Buffy, it's well trod territory. But I, I think having the reanimated cadaver decide that is an interesting call. But uh, again, it makes it's big part of why I programmed my syllabus the way I did. It really does make you pine for Elsa Lancaster to show up around the end of the first act or the you know middle of the second act, right? It makes you wish yeah. that there are more ideas explored. To figure Not out just what because she actually it, does what want. What she does yeah. want. In, because the the makeup and the hair are so damn good. Oh, mm-hmm. they look great. And that and hiss. They're so, oh, the hiss is so good. Everything about her performance and everything about the visual conception of that character kicks so much ass and again it really is uh i'd forgotten how much it bummed me out that she's in so little of the movie Mm -hmm. um but again as i've said i love this movie i i want to clarify this as i'm saying i think there's so much to like about this film it 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 works in spite of uh not having what it says on the tin uh because i wanted to do what it says on the tin man i want bride of frankenstein i want lots of it i want to know things about the nuances of this character um but I think that does speak to Elsa Lancaster's impact when she does show up on screen. Because, again, I've, I've seen this film recently, like within the last four years, five years, and I had forgotten just how little she is in it. I, yeah. I could have sworn it was like the last 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten really, truly how little uh, there is of her in this. And I, I, she makes such a big impact that I, I could have done with more of her. Um, and, again, it, it's hard to, to say how, the, how and why those decisions got made. Uh, but I think... 
just it is interesting that the filmmakers find so little for her to do and there is so much casual misogyny that goes unremarked upon in the film and it is interesting to me i want to start thinking uh again you mentioned that james wales gay um but one of the directors or one of the actors colin, uh, clive. colin clive who plays uh, henry, frankenstein. henry frankenstein thank you i, c- I couldn't remember if that was uh, i just looked at the cast earlier. Uh, probably bisexual but yeah yeah but again uh, we didn't, i don't know about what the writers have going on but there is just a ton of unremarked upon uh, shit talking to every single woman in this film, whether it's mm-hmm. Minnie, uh, or, um, uh, oh my god, Henry Frankenstein's betrothed. I forget Elizabeth. that. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Thank you, Arthur. Um, and then to, um, Elsa Lancaster earlier on as Mary Shelley. Uh, just every female character in this movie, uh, every male character in this movie is just kind of shitty to everybody yeah. around them. Even the dad of the, you know, we see this Romani family that gets menaced by Boris Karloff at one point. And that family has, like, a mom who's very much like, Dude, there is a monster out. Can we please go elsewhere? Uh, and that's about as close as the film comes to rebuking men not listening to women around them. Yeah, that's uh, the one that scene that sort of opens it up. Because if you look at the three main female characters, um, Geoffrey Spivak's the idea of the subaltern and not being able to speak. Right? Yeah. So Elsa Lancaster has no voice as the bride. Um, she does have a voice when she's Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, but yeah. she's sort of left out of that. Then you've got Elizabeth, who says very little and is silenced by her captivity early on in the film. And then we've got Minnie, who is, says lots of words, but doesn't really get to say anything, and she sort of becomes noise. Yeah, she's a comic relief and so throughout. you know the, the the anti-feminism the misogyny of the film I mean, I mean the feminist reading of a movie like this is not to argue for some sort of empowering feminist themes as much as identifying poor female representation for sure and yeah. again this this is what you know inspires my my uh my course because mm-hmm. i think there is so many as even with the camp stuff that we talk about there are a lot of seeds that uh take several decades to to grow that i i think get planted by this film uh, but again, I think it is so interesting that you see all of these ingredients along the way that do seem to speak to screenwriters who, uh, frankly, had not really considered what to do with a lady monster other than it seemed like they had the title first and probably little yeah. else. And I, I, I find that interesting about the film for sure, but it does make me, uh, well, it makes me excited for the things it created, uh, but it makes me interested in what, a, you know, a what it could have looked like, uh, which, you know, is always a fun thing to think about. I want to just further complicate this idea of the subaltern and speech is the controversy of the monster gaining speech. And Mm. so in the movie in which we are slowly silencing women by degrees, it is the film in which then we have to make a choice to at least make sure the dude can talk. Well, And And every version of dude can talk. It's an interesting choice to not give him speech in the initial film adaptation, though, right? Right. And again, speaks back to in terms of like the adaptation theory stuff we talked about. The first half of this really is just kind of covering stuff that actually is in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Is uh, because the the monster is assumed dead, and Victor Frankenstein gets to kind of fuck off on his boat trip uh, and disappear. Uh, <laughs> and then he comes back. Well, exactly. But it, it is interesting that the the first half of this movie is them just going, yeah, we know we only adapted like a fourth of the book and didn't really do it super close, so let's get some more of the cool stuff we left on the cutting room floor in here. Um, and it fits within their, their fiction to have uh, Elsa Lancaster's bride not have speech because she's brand new because Karloff's character didn't have speech when he was brand new but you are absolutely right bad optics with everything else going on in this Mm -hmm. damn movie Uh, and yeah again there's not really a whole lot of there there as you said the uh, the feminist reading of this film is to just talk about the shit that it gets wrong and but and and hold up the things that it the ideas that it plants that I, I think 
better and more interesting filmmakers, or at least more off the leash filmmakers get to do. Because yeah. you can look, it's it's the you know who the same people were in the studio. Guess who were in the studio in the thirties? I don't need to tell you, listener. You're smart. You've read a book before. You've literally turned on the television once and you've seen who runs the world. It's Rich Whiteman. I just want to be clear that I'm not about to unleash a gross conspiracy theory. Well, I, I'm just going to give you an accurate yeah. statement of fact. Uh, it's Yeah, it's the same people that run the studios for the most part these days. It's it's white men who don't think about how their actions impact other people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I like this movie a lot. I just wanted to talk, as and again, as you said, the, the voice stuff is, is interesting, too. But that's that's really all I've, I wanted to touch on that we hadn't gotten to already. Alrighty, well, I guess it's time to render a verdict. I think this is obvious. Um, shelf or trash, guys? Shelf. Shelf. Yeah, easily. I mean, yeah. so good. Yeah, I mean, what else we gotta say? I mean, the movie's good! Look, again, with all these, these things that we just talked about that we had to make sure we touched on, yeah, theme light, sure. I love this movie. Dustin, you do too, obviously. Yeah. Arthur, what was your, did you, what was uh, some stuff that really, uh, struck you about this watch being your first time? I think the pacing, um, I think the Universal movies are a little hit or miss. I, I think a lot of uh, Invisible Man and The Mummy, where mm-hmm. yeah. I think they're fun setups, but I don't think, yeah, they're yeah. very, I mean, they're all short. I mean, all these movies are super short, but I, I think just that pacing and, and moving it so quick, and there's always something going on, and there's a lot of interesting characters. You know, with The Invisible Man, you might have one or two, or The Mummy, or even The Wolf Man, right? You have a couple of yeah, interesting like characters. like three characters in that movie. Uh, but here, you've got a lot of different people, a lot of different in- motivations, and I think just from a, a structural story standpoint, it, it it's really well put together. Just the look of it again, uh, the the special effects. I mean, mm-hmm. the mini the miniature people they're incredible, and the uh, it looks great. I'm like, how are we? I, I was really fascinated by seeing the kites uh, when they're on the castle. Even you know those little things when they're moving uh, the bride up on the 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 dolly to be uh, shocked by the lightning. You know all those moments. I, I think special effects is just incredible on in this movie and. Yeah, um, a lot of those elements to me just stood out, and, and and the wackiness of it. I mean, just the pure kind of absurdity of it. I, I think not the premise, but just the characters. Doctor Pretorius is wacky, and and Minnie mm-hmm. is wacky, and the thing that to the, the yeah. little <laughs> the mini king oh, the who mini gets out king. of his jar and then gets picked up with tweezers with tweezers, and it looks. I like, mean, it's what so is seamless. happening in this? If I watch that scene, yeah, like. Outside of the context of this movie, I'd be like, what is... What, what film is this? Is this like an Abbott and Costello short? Like, yeah. I mean, it feels like something you'd see in Jack and the Beanstalk. It's, it's or, or... lunacy, yeah. Yeah the, yeah, the first time I saw this movie... It's that, a cartoon. This movie is a cartoon. Uh, yeah, and that's... It's it's you saying that, Arthur, that's... I, I, I think... Uh, what warmed my heart so much about it, watching it this time... And again, I, much with you, the first time, I was just like, what is going on with these little tiny... These tiny jar people? Yeah. Uh, but as you, cartoon is a great way to put it, and I think you get this a lot with '30s films, and it's a big part of why I'm shelving it. Mm-hmm. Is there's the rules aren't all set yet. I mean, by the time you yep. get to the classic Hollywood of the '40s, '50s, and '60s, those films are great. I love a lot of them, but the rules are in place. We there is a, a language of film that is very concise, and sure, films get a little bit longer, plots get a little bit more interesting, themes get a little bit more rich. But in the '30s, like, nobody knew the fuck. 
nobody knew the rules. Yeah. And you can make a horror film called Bride of Frankenstein that also had a maid character that's doing all kinds of buck wild stuff. You got a, a 15 minute just basically special effects diversion to show you the fact that they figured out how to make actors tiny. Yeah. Like it's stuff that doesn't need to be in this movie and is, com- as you said, a cartoon. Yeah. And it's just so charming. But I, I think even at the time, it's still somewhat subversive of what you'd expect. Sure. You know, I mean, there's, there's certainly a language put down by the previous Universal movies and horror in general. And I think there is some diversion. I think James Wells is like, I'm just going to do what I want. Exactly. Because they wanted me back and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, yeah we've man. only got 20 years of studio systems at this point. They're yeah. doing some interesting stuff still. Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, those moments about it are fascinating. Is the story, you know, you know, spellbinding or mesmerizing? No, but... In fact, it's downright happens, uninteresting. What happens in those 75 minutes from a technical standpoint, from a just, you know, obscure standpoint, it's fascinating. You're absolutely right. Yep, it's very, very fun. So we all like Bride of Frankenstein, and we think you should, too. Watch it, and uh, tell us your thoughts about it. Where can they tell us those thoughts there, Dalton? Ooh, thanks for setting me up so nicely, Dustin. Well, if you want to get on social media, I can't imagine why, but if you're already there, you can find us on Twitter at Trash. We have a minor Facebook presence, but who gives a shit? Uh, if you have long-form feedback, please send us your emails at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Once again, that is goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, you can hear more of it. Go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to figure out uh, how to get access to all of our fun bonus content, and you can help us keep the lights on. Uh, if you like this show and want to, I don't know, find some written content, uh, find some archival uh, shows, you can go over to GoodTrashMedia.com. It's got all of this, uh, well, most episodes of this podcast. We've been doing it for a long time, and uh, we've been doing it longer than we've had a website. So not all the episodes are there. Uh, but uh, look, go to Good Trash Media. You'll find all the stuff that's there. It's fun. Finally, please rate, review, subscribe. You know the deal. Um, also want to say a uh, uh, big special thanks to our friend Aaron Rodgers, who makes the theme music uh, we play every week. Uh, Aaron Rodgers has a Twitch channel now uh, oh, called cool. yeah, The Animal Havers uh, with friend of the show Alex Sanchez. Uh, Alex, of course, uh, one of the co-hosts of The Praise Down, another good trash media show. Uh, Alex and Aaron are uh, doing a web uh, a stream on Twitch where uh, they play uh, Zoo World. Uh, it's very good. Aaron is uh, really good at uh, builder games. I've watched him play a lot. Uh, so Aaron is uh, does a great job of uh, telling you the mechanics of the game in a pretty clean, clear-cut way, while Alex has a uh, fun being, well, Alex. He's one of the funniest uh, people I've ever met and uh, has, in fact, been awarded the title of Funniest Person in Oklahoma City. So, you know, like, funny enough. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's the Animal Havers. Aaron doesn't really have a web presence, so we don't ever plug anything uh, he does. We just thank him for his his uh, his very good theme song. But since he's got something to plug, I wanted to do that. That's the Animal Havers over on Twitch. Uh, go check them out. They've only done one stream so far that I know of, but I watched it, and uh, I got a lot out of it. I thought it was fun. Very good, very good. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. So we're continuing with Shocktober 8, the Ocho, colon, Dead Spots. That's right. It's a hell of a title. Next week, we're having a very guest, special guest host. Oh, Arthur, you're doing, a, you're doing a fun accent, I see that. I know this voice. I do, and too. And that very special guest host is bringing a very special movie for their blind spot. And so next week, you're going to have to tune in to find out what we're talking about. So subscribe now on your podcast player of choice and find out what happens when Shocktober continues. Ooh, I all like right. the cliffhanger. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time.
I'm not safe. I'm not safe.